Please join me in the reading of the Holy Spirit, the Bible. Psalms 16, the complete chapter. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of, the, of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not point out their heart, drink, offerings of the blood, nor shall I take names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support the lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to you. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the right. I have let the Lord continually, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Shul, neither will you blow, allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy in your heart in your right hand there are pleasures forever thank you thank you Ron turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 20 John chapter 20 I wanted to say this earlier, I didn't want to interrupt though. Victory in Jesus, by the way, is one of my favorites. So, amen, amen. John chapter 20, so we've been following the gospel of John up to this point. We've been, we've been walking through as we started. Basically, the gospel of John starts where the Bible starts, in the beginning, we learn that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Drop down to chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word that he's talking about that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 is Jesus. And the God of the universe, the God who created all things, the second person of the Trinity, took on humanity. You might ask the question, why would he do that? Hebrews chapter 2 gives us a really interesting answer. He says it is fitting that he would do that. Now, why would it be fitting? When God created man, he created them in his image. Or in other words, by means of his image, as the author of Colossians would explain the text. Who is the image? Who is the image of the Father? Jesus Christ. 
the Son of God. So it is the Son of God through whom the Father created mankind. Mankind in Genesis chapter 2 fell into sin. And in chapter 3, we find out the consequences of that sin. Genesis 3 makes a promise that the seed of a woman will crush the serpent's head. Well, Jesus takes on the, the Word of God, the Son of God takes on humanity because He is the one who created humanity. He was not willing to see His creation fall into complete destruction, so He came into humanity. Now again, what is the price that must be paid for sin? Death. Who is the only one who can reverse death? A sinless one. God is the only one who can reverse death. Well, if the punishment for sin is death, then God must die in order to conquer death. What's the opposite of death is life. In order to reverse death, God would have to die. Now, can God die? Right? No. God cannot die. It is impossible for God on his own to die. But if God takes on humanity, if the Son of God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, if God the Son takes on humanity, now he can die. Only because he has taken on humanity. And as we saw last week, he did just that. The Son of God who took flesh died for our sins. Now, if that was the end of the story, it would be a sad story indeed. There would be no victory. Death would have won the victory. Thank goodness for John chapter 20. Let's read this together. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not uh, lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am descending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that, and that he said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being, uh, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And, they said, and he said to them, peace be, to, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and, the pla- and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put, your hands, put out your hands, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we walk through this passage, we're going to see four major things. We, back at Easter, if you remember correctly, you can go back and see this. It's on our website. You can go and uh, listen to this message. Back at Easter, we, we talked about proof of the resurrection, right? How can we know that the resurrection actually happened, right? Isn't it, wouldn't it be kind of strange to believe that somebody rose from the dead? Well, we dealt with that at Easter. And if you, if you wanted to, you can go back and, and learn more about that. And we're not going to focus so much on proof of the resurrection today as much as we're going to focus on what the resurrection does. This, this particular passage, this chapter, focuses on the effects of the resurrection. We'll see, one, that the empty tomb declares the truth of the resurrection. Second, we'll see that the resurrection turns the tomb into a place of grace, not grief. Three, we'll see that the resurrection changes fear to mission. And finally, we'll see that the resurrection calls us to believe in Jesus' Jesus's identity. Uh, before we move forward, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to come to your word. God, I pray for each of us as we look at these, these, uh, these truths in your word. I pray that we would be open to them, Lord, that we would be submissive to them. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Now this here... If you've been tracking in the Gospel of John, we've noticed that there are, John brings up seven different miracles, right? And that's just kind of how John outlines his book by these seven different miracles or seven signs or seven miracles, seven, seven demonstrations of Jesus' identity, his divinity, the fact that he is God. Um, and this right here is the seventh sign, 
right? Now again, we've also seen how John has had this vision as he has looked through Jesus' life. He's had this sort of a Genesis lens, right? He's been seeing Jesus' life through the lens of all of Scripture, but also through the lens of Genesis. We, again, John 1 starts with in the beginning, just like Genesis 1 starts. And continuing forward from there, John has this lens as he looks at the text. So it's interesting that the seventh sign, Jesus' resurrection, takes place on the seventh day. The seventh day, right? Or, or Jesus', sorry, the, the events of Jesus' death and resurrection and so forth uh, is all taking place. The seventh sign takes place on this, uh, it's, it's on this first day of the week. I apologize, but that's my fault. Uh, it's the seventh sign takes place on the first day of the week, right? If we, if we were to think of of then this Genesis lens, right? The first creation took seven days, right? And God rested on the seventh day. And then this is now the first day of the week. The, uh, the, now again, the brand, a brand new start to the week. And here we have Jesus' resurrection, the beginning of the new creation, if you will. There's this lens that John has that the old creation is done and the new creation has come, right? That, that Jesus' death took place at the end of the old creation and his resurrection takes place, bringing in the new creation, the, the uh, uh, ushering in this time of the new creation. Um, the cross was the end of the old creation. The resurrection signifies the new creation. We can see that just in the way that these things are taking place, the seventh sign uh, that takes place in this first day. Um, Another interesting fact that we see here, if we look back at the text, we notice that it's the first day of the week. So, right, this is Sunday, if you will. On the first day of the week, this is Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away. Now, what do you think she's thinking at this point? Is she thinking, hey, Jesus rose from the dead? No. In fact, we get an idea what she says, right? She ran. She ran away. She, le- she saw the tomb was, re- was, was rolled away. I don't know. Maybe it was from a distance. She saw it and she goes, I have to go tell somebody. She runs back to the disciples and lets them know that, that, the, that, the, that the, um, the stone has been rolled away. And she says to them, this is to Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, we've already identified who this person is. This is John, the writer of this gospel. The way he referred to himself in the text is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Right, and we, we saw uh, several several months back that when this, when he refers to himself this way, it's not this is not an arrogant thing like I'm the guy Jesus loved. Right, this is a humbling thing. The the word he uses here for love is the one that Jesus had to love and keep on loving. Right, I'm the guy that Jesus had to keep on loving because I kept messing up. Is really the idea that John has as he as he identifies himself. And Simon went uh, he went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. She thinks the body was stolen. Right? At this point, she, all she can conceive of, the only thing she can focus on is where is the body? They must have stolen it. They've taken it out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went with the other disciple, and they went, started going toward the tomb, and the text describes that they ran. They ran there. And John outran Peter, most likely because he was probably younger. Uh, we, we guess that John was probably in his teens at this time. Uh, Peter was probably older, right? If I was to have a race with one of the teenagers, they would win because I'm fat and old, right? Uh, at least I feel that way, right? Uh, many of you might debate with me, but I feel that way. Um, 
they have taken the Lord. Uh, they, they, so they go running, and, and, and John outruns Peter, and he gets to the tomb first. But notice what happens. John stops at the doorway. Now, how a tomb would have been arranged. This would have been, there would have been a low opening, and it would have had steps down into the tomb, and there would have been a bench that would go all the way around the inside wall of the tomb. So John stops, and he stoops down to look in and see what's going on. Right? He stops and stoops. What did Peter do? As soon as he gets there, right? This is like the tortoise and the hare story, right? John got there first, but Peter was the first one to dive in. He said, all right, I'm going in, right? Beats John inside. And what does it say? It says, then Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. What does he see? Grave clothes. His body's gone. Now, at this point, that might, you know, again, that we're starting to get hints here. Some bells should start tingling, right? He, or some, some things that he should, he should start remembering some things Jesus had told them. That three days later, he would rise from the dead. You know, that the, the, the temple would be destroyed, and three days later, he'd rebuild it. And all these other things that Jesus had already told the disciples. Some of this should have started ringing in, but it doesn't yet, Right? In fact, then John goes in, he sees the exact same thing. Now, again, it's interesting that, that, uh, that the author, John, focuses on those grave clothes. What's significant about that? We've noticed that when John spends attention on something and focuses on something, it's for a reason. Uh, I'll give you three reasons, I think, that, or, or at least one scholar suggests uh, about the grave clothes. One, the neatness of the clothes Right? One of the, the, the head cloth is, is folded up and set aside. It's a little odd. Now, if a robber had taken the body, do you think he would have taken the time to do that? Do you think he would have taken, let's unwrap him, let's take the head covering off, let's make sure it's folded nice and neat, and then set it aside. Think that would be the case? No! Robbers wouldn't have done this. But what if wolves had attacked the tomb? Right? Maybe an animal got in there. That's another famous argument against the resurrection. An animal took it. Would an animal have left the clothes like that? No. So something else has got to be going on here. Right? There's evidence of the resurrection taking place just the way the clothes are lying. Secondly, we see there's a contrast to the grave clothes of Lazarus. Remember, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Did Lazarus have his linen clothes on? Remember? He came out of the tomb, all wrapped up, and Jesus said, hey, unwrap him! Right? Get, his, get that stuff off of him. But here, when Jesus rises from the dead, the clothes are off and they're lying separate. There's a contrast here between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. Finally, and very interestingly, this word face cloth that's used here, this, this word is related to the word that's used to describe the veil that's used by Moses. When he, when the one that he removed when he would enter the presence of the Lord. In Exodus chapter uh, 34, I think it is, uh, it talks about how this, he would have this veil on. When Moses was before the presence of the Lord, it made it, his face was radiant, right? It was bright, and the people couldn't look at Moses because of this. So he would put a veil on so they could actually look at him, right? And he would take this veil off when he entered the presence of the Lord. He put it back on when he'd, see, when he'd be before the people. But now Jesus, the new Moses, remember we've talked about how Jesus is the prophet like Moses, right? From Deuteronomy uh, 18. Uh, he's the prophet like Moses. The Jesus, the new Moses, has not merely dropped the veil as Moses did, but is carefully removed, 
folded and set aside the veil. One scholar remarks, like Moses who put aside the veil when he ascended to meet God in glory, Jesus, the new Moses, has put aside the veil of his flesh and has ascended into the presence of God to receive from him the glory which he had with the Father before the world was made. So there's a lot of significance to what's going on here. John wants to point us to these ideas, point us to what's going on, the significance of what's taking place here. Then the scripture tells us that that John, he saw and believed. But then it says, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures. Right now it's telling us this because what do they do next? What does it say in the next verse? They went to their homes. Almost like nothing happened, right? Hey, there's these clothes missing. All right, let's go home. Right? It says they didn't understand the scripture. Now we going to ask the question, what scripture didn't they understand? I would propose to you that one possibility would be Psalm 16, which we read earlier. This is the exact scripture that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. When he's declaring the gospel, when he's finally gotten it, when he's figured it out, when he's understood the scriptures, he, says Psalm, he, say, he quotes Psalm 16 and says, the scriptures said that he would rise from the dead. Looking back at this psalm, let's, let's refresh our memories here. In Psalm chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 10, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or the place of death, or let your Holy One see corruption. John reads Psalm 16, and he says he doesn't see just some historical guy writing some song. He sees prophecy. He sees the speaker of this psalm being Jesus Christ himself, saying, God, you won't let me stay dead. You won't let your Holy One's body corrupt or decay, as, as, as Ron's, uh, Ron's translation said. What happens? He raised from the dead. Psalm 16 is a prophecy about the resurrection. This is one of many scriptures I think we could quote and show that this is the scriptures that he is talking about here. Peter quotes this in Acts chapter 2. The empty tomb then declares at the top of its lungs that the resurrection has taken place, yet the disciples don't understand. They don't get it yet. We've said that before that the disciples are pretty thick-skulled. Here they are again, not understanding the second point we see here is that the resurrection turns the tomb into a place of grace and not grief. Now, if we look at here, Mary Magdalene stays behind. The disciples go back. Peter and John go back to their homes. Mary Magdalene stays behind, and she's weeping, right? She's weeping. She doesn't know where Jesus' body is. This is someone who is very close to her. She doesn't know where he is, and she's very torn up about it. And then she sees two angels in the tomb, and they ask her, why are you weeping? What are you doing? Now, it's interesting to note uh, is when it describes the angels, it says he, he saw two angels in white, verse 12, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, again, another detail that seems like an odd thing to say. Like, why would you bring that up? And again, does John ever say things without, without purpose? No. What could this possibly be representing? One angel at his head, one at his feet. Now, there's many possibilities or several that scholars have brought up. I would suggest that this tomb represents the temple. Right? There's the inner sanctum of the tomb. And in the very back of the tomb is where Jesus' body lays. 
And now the angels sit on either side of the head and foot of Jesus. Now think back to the temple. What was the what piece of furniture was in the very back in the inner sanctum of the temple, guarded by angels? The Ark of the Covenant. The angels are sitting there set, showing in pictorial form, this is the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat, or as Martin Luther translated it, the throne of grace. What is before her is the presence of God. It is grace itself. The resurrection has taken place and the angels are showing this. And she is standing before the throne of grace, upset. Doesn't that seem odd? Why would she be sad in the midst of the gospel presented before her? The throne of grace. We see in that that Jesus is the full replacement of the temple, not just, uh, not just Moses. Not he, he, Jesus is fulfilling all of Scripture, even the very, the very uh, pieces that are in the temple, the very furniture pieces. Jesus fulfills all of that. We also might see it, to get an idea of what Mary, what's going on with Mary here, we might take another illustration from the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 8, they had found, they had found the law, right? They had, this is the, the, the people had been in exile, the people of Israel had been in exile. They come back, they're rebuilding the temple. And here we are, they're rebuilding the temple, and they find a scroll. This isn't just any scroll, though. This scroll contains the law. It contains the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so what do they do? They get the priest. They get Ezra, the scholar. Come and read this, right? So he starts reading the scroll. And as he's reading the scroll, an interesting thing happens in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. The people get really upset. They start getting really sorrowful. The text then explains that the people were sorrowful, and then Ezra began to explain the text, Right? Now imagine this. You're a people who've been, who haven't heard the God, who probably haven't heard God's word spoken in a long time, and they start hearing about all these laws and rules and regulations. Right? Don't eat shellfish. Don't do this. Don't do that. That would be pretty upsetting, right? Well, we're, we're lost. There's no hope for us. And then Ezra explains it. And then they're told, don't sorrow, but rejoice. Now Why? The point of the laws is you can't do it on your own. All those rules and laws are there to teach us one thing. You cannot be holy and perfect on your own. Ezra knew this. Ezra understood this and, show, and shared with them, there is one who will do this for us. Future tense, he's prophesying. He tells them that the interpretation of this text, I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, he tells them the interpretation of this text is Jesus, right? And so they rejoice. The wrong thing to do standing before the gospel is to weep. The right thing to do is rejoice. So here she is weeping, doing the exact opposite of what she's supposed to do. Jesus then stands before or appears to her and he says, woman, what are you doing? Why are you crying? Right? He used the same term that he referred to his mother in in chapter 2. And that he referred to his mother again. It's this distancing term. He's, he's putting some distance between the two of them. He says, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken him away and I don't know where, they, where they've put him. And then Jesus says to her, Mary. Simply says her name. Jesus has already told the disciples, I know my sheep and they know my voice and I know them by name. 
as soon as he gives her her name. What does she say? My teacher. There you are. Her grief is turned into joy. Because she knows her Lord has risen from the dead. And that, that shows that he has conquered death. And then he gives Mary a commission. He says, go and tell the disciples. He tells her, share the gospel. Share with them what happened. So she leaves. And that night, then Jesus shows up. Uh, so we see here that the, the resurrection share, turns grief into joy. And then the thir ne third thing we see here is the resurrection changes fear into mission. We see the disciples. The next scene comes at the end of the day. This is Sunday night now. And, and the, the disciples are here meeting in, their, meeting in this house. They have the doors locked because they're afraid of what's going to happen. Remember, only three days ago, they killed their leader. They're probably still kind of wondering, are they going to come kill us or not? What's happening? Excuse me, what's going to happen to us? And they're, they're sitting here afraid. Their doors are locked, showing that they're afraid. Then Jesus stands in the middle of the room and says, peace be with you. Shalom, if you will. The Hebrew word is shalom. Peace. Peace be with you. This is less of a greeting and more of a pronouncement of blessing. He's not just saying hello. He's saying, he's giving them a declaration. He's pronouncing a blessing. He's declaring to them that the peace of God, the eschatological peace, the end times peace that was promised in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, has now been made accessible through Jesus Christ. It is the equivalent of what he said on the cross. It is complete. He comes to the disciples and he says, it's over. I've done it. Peace is now here. The Old Testament had prophesied that in the day of the Lord, when, 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 when in, the day, in the great day of the Lord, that, 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 that peace would be brought to the people. And here Jesus says, peace is here. It's happened. Then in relation to this blessing, right? This is a, a blessing. He says, basically then, we could interpret this as he's saying, the gospel has been done. The gospel has been, has been fulfilled, and now it's available. Right? That's a blessing, is it not? Then what does he tell them to do? Drop down into verse 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This blessing comes with a mission. The blessing of salvation comes with a mission. We looked in, on Wednesday, we looked at Psalm 67. I'm going to read just verses 1 and 2 here. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah, that, you may, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among the nations. Why does God give blessing? So that we might take the gospel to the nations. That is the whole reason for any blessing. We looked at it on Wednesday, and we'll repeat again today. Any blessing God gives is for one purpose and one purpose only, for the gospel. God doesn't give you material blessing so that you can have more comfort. God doesn't bless you with salvation so that you can be better than someone else. Any blessing that you receive, the greatest blessing being the gospel, is that we now have a mission. We as a church have a mission. This building is a blessing. Any of the facilities we have here are a blessing that God has given us. If we take that and say the purpose of this blessing is so that we can have air conditioning and padded seats to sit on, we have lost focus of, what God, of why God gives us what he gives us. 
The reason we have blessing is for a mission. We have one purpose and one purpose only as a church, and that is to take the gospel to the nations starting where we are. That's it. Continuing on then, uh, he, he, he gives them this, this commission, right? He tells them, I'm sending you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. If we were to think that, about this, if Jesus, what Jesus is essentially saying is it is, the, it is part of what the Father and the Son have always done, right? Part of what the Father does is send the Son. Why? To save the world. Always has been. That's always been God's purpose. God has always been a missionary God. Think back all the way to Genesis when he makes a promise to Abraham. He says, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. We saw today in Isaiah 66, the prophesy, or that God declares that all nations will come and bow and worship. Philippians 2 says that every tribe and tongue and nation will bow and will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Not to their own damnation or to their salvation. They will believe that Jesus is Lord. God has always been a missionary God. He continues to be a missionary God. Essentially then what this tells us, if we do not have as our purpose to take the gospel to the nations, we are not a church. If we say, you know what? God's whole purpose of wanting to be a missionary God, it doesn't matter to us. We don't need to do that. We don't need to share the gospel in Gordon. We're here because we want to have a social club or whatever we want to do. We have lost sight of the gospel. If we have lost sight of the gospel, we cease to be a church. We cease to be a church. We must never lose sight of what God has called us to do. Then he gives them the Holy Spirit. He says, after he says this, verse 23, he says, or verse, uh, verse 22, with that, he's, uh, he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Essentially, he gives them the Holy Spirit. We'll see this again in Acts chapter 2, when the full realization of the giving of the Holy Spirit takes place and at the day of Pentecost. And here we have, he gives them the Holy Spirit. Why does he give them the Holy Spirit? Because with, the, with a mission comes the Holy Spirit. They're given the gospel to take to the nations, and he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so you have the power to do that. Which is the whole point of Acts chapter 1 and 2 as well. Giving you the Holy Spirit so that you can take the gospel to nations. Then he makes this interesting statement in verse 23. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, it's forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, does that mean that we as a church get to say, you're forgiven, you're not. You're forgiven, you're not. No. Who does the forgiving? God does. So what is this saying? What could this possibly mean? We have to connect it with the mission he has given the church. Right here he is before the disciples. This is the foundation of the church, guys. Here he is giving, them to, giving the Holy Spirit to the church and giving them a mission. And he says, basically, share the gospel. It is the job of the church to take the gospel. It is not the job of parachurch organizations to take the gospel. God is telling these people, he's saying, he's saying if that basically through the church, if people respond to the gospel that you guys are proclaiming and respond in belief, they're forgiven. If they respond by rejecting, they are not forgiven. Right? Then forgiveness is withheld. 
The, the church then becomes a focus on this only because we are on the mission. Right? It is God that does this forgiving or the rejecting. It is us that takes the gospel. Okay? And people's response, that's what's going on here. Uh, to give clarification to that. Final point I want to make here today is that the resurrection calls us to believe in Jesus' identity real quickly. He, took, he goes to Thomas. Uh, Thomas was not there, as Dee mentioned. Thomas wasn't there. Okay? You have ten disciples minus Thomas. Now Thomas shows up right after this, right after this, uh, probably maybe that, even that night on that Sunday night or maybe sometime during the week. What do they do? They obey. What are they telling Thomas? Hey, Jesus rose from the dead. He's, they're sharing the gospel with Thomas. What does Thomas say? I'll never believe. Unless I see it, I'm never going to believe. Then eight days later, this is the next Sunday, right? This is now... The second Sunday after, or the, this is the first Sunday Jesus rose from the dead, and this is the second Sunday after Jesus rose, rises from the dead. Okay? This is for the second day of church, right? Second week of ever having church. Here the disciples are, still locking the doors, probably still a little bit afraid. Now again, can we really ad- admit that, you know, we're any different, right? We know the gospel, we have the gospel, we've been given the mission, yet we still are afraid. Here they are still afraid. And then Thomas is here with them this time. Jesus, again, came and stood among them. I want to just reflect back on this. Think about this. They got locked doors. And Jesus just, hey, guys. Right? That's pretty neat, isn't it? Imagine if Jesus, like, Jesus just did it. Just like, boop, here he is. What is going on here, right? That might be a little bit shocking. We'd also probably rejoice. And hopefully if it was made of this sermon, we'd be like, hey, we know what's going on, Right? Otherwise, we might be like, hey, who's this magician guy, right? <laughs> what, what, hat, what hat did he jump out of? I don't know, right? Um, so here we go. Um, Jesus does this, and, in, and almost like he had been a part of the conversation that they had with Thomas, right? Almost like he had heard that. He tells to Thomas, he says, he tells them, peace be with you again. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Almost like he had heard Thomas's, Thomas's argument. He says, here it is. Here's the scars. Touch them. If you want to touch them, touch them. There they are. Notice the scripture, just like, I love how Didi, I love how you pointed this out. The scriptures never say that he touches Jesus. Right? He said, I need to touch it. And what does it say? He saw and he believed. He didn't need to touch him. He saw it and he believed. He, Jesus tells him, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He realizes Jesus' identity right there. You are my Lord. You are my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. This section then functions as a warning and an encouragement to us to believe without seeing directly with our eyes. I've never seen Jesus. Not literally with my physical eyes. I haven't. I have not had the opportunity to touch his scars, to stick my fingers where they put the, where they put the spear in his side. I haven't had that opportunity. Jesus says, this, I would imagine then, this would go for every single one of us in this room. If you then are a believer in Jesus Christ, God, Jesus says, blessed are those who believe without seeing. What is he saying then? What are we supposed to believe? What do we believe? 
Did John see this with his eyes? Yes, he did, right? We're believing the testimony of John. We're believing the testimony of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're believing the testimony of those who have seen through the rest of the New Testament. We're believing what they have said. That's what God told us to do. God told them, you've seen, now go and tell. And they did. And we're believing that same testimony. Why did Thomas, why was Jesus rebuking Thomas? Not because he doubted. He's rebuking him because he did not believe the testimony of the disciples. I sent my church to tell you, they told you, and you rejected the message. That's why Thomas was rebuked. Not because he had doubts. It's because he was rejecting the gospel. He was unwilling to accept the gospel. And then the, the, the text gives us the, the purpose of the whole book of John. We dealt with this in the very first week, almost an entire year ago. This verse says this, Now Jesus did many other, other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There's lots of other things Jesus did. There's lots of other miracles he did. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can read those and find out more about those. There's lots of other things that Jesus did. But why did John write this? These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And believing you may have life in his name. What does the resurrection do? What does the resurrection show us? It shows us the true identity of Jesus. If you watch the History Channel stuff about Jesus, they're trying to find out, what is this? Who is this historical Jesus? Who's the guy that the text is actually writing about? Who's the guy behind the text? John's saying, that's a stupid question. His true identity is that he is the son of God. And he took on your sin and my sin. You need to believe. These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God. And believing you may have life, peace, shalom. The only answer to the problems in our world, the only answer to the sin in your heart is Jesus. Here the text calls us to see the resurrection and to believe that he is the son of God and to trust in him. So the four, the four points we see in the text today, again, the empty tomb declares the truth of the resurrection. We see secondly that the, the resurrection turns the tomb into a place of grace, not grief. Third, we see that the resurrection changes our fear into a mission. And fourth, we see that the resurrection calls us to believe in Jesus' identity. If you're here today and you're, you're not a believer, you've, you've maybe heard this before, but the Holy Spirit is drawing you to salvation right now.